Well, I am starting a brand new series today called Upside Down. Upside Down. And it's based on the simple premise that the life and the teaching of Jesus turned the world upside down. Isn't that a fact? The life and the teaching of Jesus turned the world upside down. Here's a few of the well-known things that he said that changed the world. He said, love your enemies. Well, there's something that we don't typically think. That's counterintuitive. That's upside down teaching. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's upside down to the way that our world thinks and our world operates. Jesus said, if somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek, which is pretty well the exact opposite of what we want to do, right? It's upside down. Jesus even said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Radical ideas, ideas that changed everything, words that turn the thinking of our world upside down as we know it. But there's perhaps, I think, no greater section of Scripture has turned the world upside down than the, the passage we're going to press into through this series in the coming weeks, what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's taken from the book of Matthew and chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're going to cover just a few verses of it today, but it's rich in thinking, rich in challenging ideas that have changed the world, words that turned it all upside down. And the process of doing my research, of course, I read Scripture, I read, you know, Bible commentaries and great thinkers, but I also did a little Google searching, as you do, right? <laughs> Google, fount of knowledge. And so I went to Google Images, and I typed in variations on the idea upside down. I think we've got a few photos that we're going to show you today, uh, because apparently there are people out there that enjoy doing all kinds of things upside down. I think we've got people flying upside down, for instance, or driving upside down. Got a picture of people playing basketball upside down or playing the drums upside down. Thanks, Tommy Lee. And uh, there's even a photo of somebody walking underwater upside down. That's like a mind-bending image to look at. As if walking underwater isn't already hard enough, somebody thought, I'm going to take it one level up and do even that upside down. Anybody in this room had your life turned upside down by Jesus? Mine was a radical story in many ways of transformation. He, he came into my life at the age of 16. That, this is my testimony in short. You know, I was probably a lot like a lot of teenagers in the sense that I was very confused about who I was and what the purpose of my life was, what I was supposed to do. My passions at the time were not necessarily in this order, but music and my band, my girlfriend, and getting drunk. That was basically my world at the age of 16. They, they were passionate pursuits of mine. And then Jesus exploded into my life at the age of 16, and everything began to change. And not through some legalism, not through external pressure, not through conforming from the outside in, but through a radical experience of Jesus that changed me from the inside out. You know, my, uh, my parents weren't followers of Jesus at the time, and, uh, and I remember their worry a few months into this because my world turned upside down so quickly that my parents, I remember distinctly one day them getting out the encyclopedia back in the days when you had printed encyclopedias, and they flicked 
to where they thought the name of my church was going to be because they were convinced I joined a cult. That was my, that was my parents' concern. My friends wondered what on earth had happened to me. Suddenly, my words started to change. My lifestyle choices started to change. You know, my priorities were all upended, and it wasn't necessarily offensive to them. In fact, I'm friends with many of them to this day, but it certainly was confusing and a radical change as literally my life began to turn upside down. And as radical as those external changes were, the real truth is, is that, that I felt like I'd suddenly come alive. And maybe a better way of describing it is that it felt like everything made sense in a whole new way. I'd experienced life, and my world was turned upside down. You know, the, the preacher, Billy Sunday, he said this. He said, the world is wrong side up, and it needs to be turned upside down in order to be right side up. And I think that, you know, he said that quote generations ago, but does, doesn't that feel just as true today? as it did when he said that? Doesn't the world, as we watch the news and social media and as we watch events unfold around us, doesn't it feel like the world is upside down and we need Jesus to empower us to help turn it right side up again? Billy Graham said this. He said, the men who followed him, who followed Jesus, were unique in their generation. They turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. The world has never being the same. Now, I believe this is true of you and I still today as His disciples, and we, we, we enable the love and grace and power of Jesus to turn our hearts right side up, then we can turn what's wrong in our world upside down. And yet, as I realize that, as I think about that, that phrase, upside down, I think, how many times in our generation alone has somebody claimed that some event, some cause, or some person was turning the world upside down. Like, how many times does that get said? That things would never be the same again. In fact, as I Googled this and I was looking at different people and what they'd said about turning the world upside down, I found quite a number of people speaking about events that happened in my lifetime where at the time they said that things will never be the same. The world as we know it has turned upside down. And I realized if I describe this event to my children, they have never heard of it and it happened in my lifetime, right? How many times a day do you suppose the media describes something as game-changing, right? Isn't that the phrase of the hour? Every CEO says their new invention, their new product, their new strategy is game-changing. And of course, the reality is that 99 times out of 100, or more so, it's more like when you put your hand in a bucket of water and you pull it out, and the water returns to just as if your presence had never been there, that's really in many ways what we see oftentimes when something is supposedly turning the world upside down or game-changing things as we know it. I say that to reinforce the fact that I think it's much more difficult than we imagine to truly turn the world upside down. Much more difficult than we might imagine to truly change the game. And yet Jesus did it. And Jesus did it, frankly, in a relative backwater of the world. Jesus did it. Jesus did it in the most extraordinary of ways. He did it at a time when He didn't have many of what we would assume would be the advantages of impacting the world. He didn't have social media. He didn't have amplification like this to carry the sound of His voice. There were no printing presses and the technology that we experienced. There was no air travel to get Him around more efficiently. 
and pile on top of all of that, he ministered for right around three years. This was challenging to me as a preacher. I realized Jesus had an impact for two millennia with three years of ministry. I've already been in ministry eight times longer <laughs> than Jesus' earthly ministry, but impact, well, there's no comparison, is there? Jesus. And you know, what's interesting to me is that the largest city he visited at the time, Jerusalem, had an estimated population of around 100,000. So think about the resonating impact of his life despite all of those, what you could perceive as obstacles, and yet he literally defined history. It's, it's the year that it is today. It's 2017, the year of our Lord. B.C., A.D. exists because of Jesus, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. He literally split time and turned the world, as we know it, upside down. And as I said, I really believe this passage we're going to study in the coming weeks epitomizes the impact that, that Jesus had. Perhaps more than any other passage of Scripture has resonated, I think, with so many hearts and minds. Matthew chapter 5, I want to read to you from verse 1 to verse 6. You know, contained with this, in this passage here are, are, are what we call the Beatitudes, the blessings. I'm only going to, I'm only going to tackle the first four of them today. But I think they'll remind us the, the radical teaching of the person of Christ and how both his life and his teaching have changed the world as we know it. I want to read to you Matthew 5, verses 1 to 6. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed. You know, if you, if you wanted a title for this section of the message today, or what really the idea that I'm driving at, is, is I think this is a story about crowds and mountains. Did you notice something as I read that passage? That's a little unusual. I've read this Many times I've preached on many of the verses in this story, but as I read this, you know, it's possible to experience the Bible every time you read it in new and fresh ways. We never really get to the bottom of this. You know that, right? It's not just a textbook. It's not just a historical document. It's a living word. So as I read it, I noticed something new just this week as I read verses 1 and 2. L listen for a minute. Listen to what, what is being said here. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside. Does that sound strange to anybody else? Like, get beyond the surface for a minute. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. It's about crowds and mountains. Why does Jesus, when he sees, it's not like he didn't see the crowd. The Bible says plainly, he sees the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountain. Why? Why does he do that? It's not like he has a phobia of crowds. Jesus is in crowds over and over and over through the Gospels. It's not like he dislikes people. He's come to save them. <laughs> it's not like he's uncomfortable ministering to crowds. He does that many times in Scripture. In fact, I don't even know that he dislikes crowds because the Scripture tells us plainly in one occasion that he looked out over the multitudes and, and the Scripture says that he had compassion on them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus loves the crowds. He came to save multitudes of people. He loves people. 
And yet he does this strange thing. He sees a crowd, and then he goes up on the mountain. Why? Let's go a layer deeper on this. What's he about to do? He's about to preach arguably the most important sermon in all of history, right? Now think like a preacher if you can this morning. This is good practice. Think like a preacher. He's got the most important message of his life to deliver. He sees the crowd, and then he leaves for the mountain. Hello? Does that strike anybody as strange? If you're about to deliver the most important message, perhaps, of history, doesn't it seem strange to you? This famous message, this famous sermon that would be taught on millennia later, Jesus goes up on the mountain to share it. He has a crowd gathered, and he walks away from them with no announcement about what's, it, what's about to occur, not even a heads up. It's not as if Jesus says to them, now, guys, today, this is a good one. I've been working on this. It's a good message, guys. It's going to, a little bit of a hike, but it's going to be worth it. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this message. No, there's no announcement. It's not on church news. There's no, nobody sends out a text. Make sure you're there today. It's a key one. No, Jesus just sees the crowd and I'm out. He goes up a mountain, but I find that's often the way of, of the kingdom. I found that oftentimes the very best things that God has for you and I don't just automatically fall into our lap. They don't just always come easily or automatically. I, I remember years ago, I got a picture here of me climbing a mountain in New Zealand called Mount Cook years ago. I went up a mountain. Can we put that up on the screen? And uh, I got my baby face on in this, in this photo. I hope they have it. There it is. This is right before I, this is like the year before I met Andy, actually. I climbed up this mountain where, true story, they actually filmed the movie Vertical Limit there. So it's quite a mountain in New Zealand. And, you know, you can see I was very prepared for this event, you know, because I'm wearing my hiking clothes, not so much. Me and a friend climbed the mountain with a bottle of water between us. We were like... <laughs> but anyway, it was a great experience. I was still smiling, apparently, at the end of it. But what I remember most distinctly about sitting there and taking this photo that I still remember is I remember how quiet... I remember it was quiet because the crowds were in the valley, not on the mountain. It was quiet up there. It was peaceful up there. It took a lot of effort to get up there. Most people were content to experience the mountain from the bottom, take the photo from the bottom. And I think the way of the kingdom is often a lot like that. That sometimes we have to be willing to step out from what the crowds will do, out from what's comfortable, out from what we've known, that often we don't experience the best of what God has for us if we do what we've always done the way that we've always done it. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again for a second. It says, Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up on a mountainside and sat down. It says his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So the Bible makes a distinction here between the crowd and the disciples. He saw the crowd, went up on the mountain, sat down, and began to teach, and his disciples came to him. So there's a difference between the, the disciples and the crowd. His disciples came. I bet this is one of those you-had-to-be-there kind of moments, right? This epic message that people would be processing and digesting, and I was there for the Sermon on the Mount. I bet, like, I bet it was one of those things you wouldn't want to have missed. You know, you're on, maybe you're schlepping to a bar mitzvah the next day, and you see your buddy in the market, and you say, how good was Jesus' message yesterday? You're the salt of the earth. Oh, drop the mic, Jesus. Amazing, right? And your friend's like, uh, and you realize awkward pause. Oh, wait, you weren't, you weren't there? 
You went, you were there in the crowd, and your friend's like, well, you know what? I didn't feel like climbing the mountain. I heard it was really good. I mean, that's one of those moments you didn't want to miss, right? It's one of those moments you didn't want to miss. Where were you? I didn't feel like climbing. I had to do my hair. You know, what, do I, what would it take for us to miss the things of God and His very best for us? See, nobody ever said that following Jesus would be easy. No one ever said that following Jesus would be comfortable. And if that was the message you got sold, I think you got sold a little short. Because you know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said to a group of disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And, you, and maybe we think, 2020 hindsight, well, the cross, it's a symbol of resurrection life. It is now. It wasn't then. When Jesus said that statement to the people listening on, he had not yet died and been resurrected. So their only experience of the cross was watching people die. And Jesus says to them, you know what, if you really want to follow me, it's going to take denying yourself. Frankly, it's going to take dying to yourself in order to follow me. Are we willing to make some sacrifices? Are we willing to pay a price? Are we willing to leave the crowd behind? Are we willing to do something new? Are we willing to join a team, to make a commitment, to cross the line, no turning back? Are we willing? And I don't want to suggest for a moment that it's all hard work following Jesus. That wouldn't be an accurate picture either. But it's not without its challenges. It's not without its climbing. It's not without its decision-making moments to say, oh, separate from the crowd and pursue Jesus, even if it means going to the mountain, so to speak. You know, if Andy and I, my wife and I, weren't willing to do a little mountain climbing, I guess Liberty Church wouldn't be here today. We, we were in the, in the valley. We were in, a, we were in a crowd, a great crowd. Actually, we had some great friends. I was running a business, making the best money in my life. You know, it was, it was a great thing. We had a beautiful house. I think we could fit like three of our apartments now in our old house, right? But Jesus started to call to us from the mountain, so to speak, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ever had those moments? And we started to get this stirring in us. Oh, imagine planting a church in New York City. Imagine influencing a city that influences the world for the gospel. I had that moment on the Statue of Liberty when I felt the Holy Spirit as clear as I've ever heard His voice ask me a question that rocked my world. And He said, what would you give for a city? What's He doing? He's calling me to the mountain. Are you willing to climb? Are you willing to set some of your comfort behind? Are you willing to come up to the higher ground? Well, that was my calling. What's yours? What's God calling you to? What is, what, what's that higher ground, that higher purpose, that higher calling that God has for you? Because it's going to take a little climbing, a little commitment to get there. You know, Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2 in the message, a different translation, says it this way. Matthew 5, 1 to 2 in the message says, When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside, and those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. See, doesn't that explain it all? Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. I wonder if you and I are willing to be climbing companions of Jesus. I wonder if we're willing to be numbered among the committed, 
the disciples who are willing to separate from the comfort of the crowd to experience something more in Him. You know, most, most gold mines start with a discovery on the surface, right? Somebody's walking along, or maybe they're in a river, and they see something shiny. They reach down, they pick it up. It's a little nugget of gold, what we call alluvial gold, like a deposit on the surface. Maybe a waterway brought it there, and it's a deposit right on the surface. They, maybe they find a few more. Now people start prospecting and panning for gold. We're on the surface still. At some point, that's exhausted, right? But is all the gold gone? No, at some point, somebody says, I'm taking this plot of land and I'm going deeper. And really, the truth is, the greatest wealth is not on the surface, it's below the surface. Isn't that a picture of you and I and what it is to follow Jesus? My experience was he, he definitely wet my appetite with a few nuggets right there on the surface that I didn't have to dig for. He definitely caught my attention with bright, shiny things, amen? And then I started to realize the value of what I was finding. I started to call my other friends. Let's, but at some point, I had to go below the surface. At some point, I had to make a commitment. At some point, getting the real value was not just about what came easily to me anymore. It was about digging a little deeper, doing the hard work of going below the surface. So, you know, in this passage, Jesus outlines eight of these what we call beatitudes or blessings. And I just want to spend the time that I have today talking about the first four, because the more I study them, the more radical I realize they truly are. They seem so simple, and yet they are so confounding. Because Jesus says to us, it's blessed to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, and to hunger and thirst. That is counterintuitive, counter to the way of our world. Let's dig in, amen? Verse 3 says this. We read it already. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think that's a very easy phrase to misunderstand. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? If you're anything like me, maybe some of these phrases that Jesus uses here, we don't have a great working definition for us. What's Jesus saying? I mean, is he saying we should be empty inside? Is that what it means to be poor in spirit? Or is he saying we should be eternally poor? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, the Amplified Translation helps us a little. The Amplified Translation says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it adds in parentheses. It says, it says, the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance. That's what Jesus says it means to be poor in spirit. He says, is those devoid of spiritual arrogance. Now, we, we need to be careful that we're not so full of ourselves that we have no room to be filled by Him. That's what spiritual arrogance can cost us. When we're so full of ourselves, so full of us and our priorities, our agenda, that we don't have room for God in our lives. There's a, another translation called the J.B. Phillips. And he says, happy are the humble-minded. That's another way of understanding what it is to be poor in spirit. Happy, blessed, he says, are the humble-minded. You know, humility is like the antithesis. It's the opposite of pride. Are we, are we humble in our spirit? Are we, are we, do we have a revelation that He is everything to us and that in and of ourselves, we, do we have a, a poverty of our spirit enough to receive the richness of God? Billy Graham explained this verse this way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, what does it mean? Simply this, we must be humble in our spirits. If you put the word humble in place of the word poor, you'll understand what he meant. In other words, when we come to God, we must realize our own sin, our spiritual emptiness and poverty. We must not be self-satisfied or proud in our hearts, thinking we don't really need God. If we are, 
God can't bless us. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride, Billy Graham says, he says, can take all kinds of forms, but the worst is spiritual pride. Often the richer we are in things, the poorer we are in our hearts. Have you faced your own need of Christ? Do you realize that you're a sinner and need God's forgiveness? Don't let pride or anything else get in the way, but turn to Christ in humility and faith, and He will bless you and save you. That's what it is for us to be poor in spirit. In other words, poor in spirit is like a contrast with being, you know, filled with spiritual pride. You know, I think if, if the humble in spirit, the Scripture says here, receive the kingdom of heaven, then perhaps the proud in spirit receive the kingdom of themselves. So full of ourselves that we can't receive God's goodness for our lives. You know, the, the simple fact is we can't even receive salvation without acknowledging that we need saving. Amen? It takes humility. It takes a recognition of our need to even come to Him, to acknowledge without Him, I'm nothing. He's my Savior. He's my all. And when I recognize that, and when I embrace that, I'm walking in what it is to be poor in spirit. I like the message translation of this verse too. That same verse, verse 3 in the message says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. Isn't that good? <laughs> less of you, more of God and His rule. It's kind of like, if you remember John the Baptist Speaking of Jesus, he, say, he said, I must decrease, he must increase. Blessed, the Bible says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second blessing that Jesus speaks here, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Can you imagine like live in real time when Jesus was preaching this, people thinking, thinking wait, what did he say? I mean, blessed are those who mourn. Did he, and people whispering, did he say mourn? Does anybody feel really blessed when you mourn? I mean, is that something that anybody's like, oh, mourning, I'm so blessed. This is, this is strange what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who mourn, he said, for they, they will be comforted. Mourning is a state most of us want to avoid. Both the state of mourning and what causes mourning are things that you and I are conditioned to avoid. And if we do find ourselves mourning, we typically think the sooner I get out of that state, the better. And then Jesus comes and says, blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? I think there's a few layers to understanding this. One is hinted at in the second half of his sentence. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So part of understanding the blessing of following Jesus is to understand that when we mourn in Him, we don't mourn as the world mourns. We don't mourn as those who have no sense of eternity and salvation mourn. So we have a wonderful counselor. We have a present comforter, amen? Our very present help in time of need. Our God is with us. So that changes things. You know, we have a God who specializes in turning mourning into dancing, tears into joy, a God who treasures even our dark moments and bottles our tears. We, we are, when we mourn, even in our darkest hour, we still know that He is good and He is worthy of praise. So that's one way of understanding why we're blessed when we mourn. But let's go a little deeper. What about why we would mourn in following Jesus? It's not just about sad events in the course of our life that Jesus is speaking to here. Of course, that's inevitable. And we're going to experience the blessing and the comfort of God when we mourn in the natural. But what about, what about this sense that we mourn 
the death of our old life when we come to Christ. See, when we become a follower of Jesus, we die to ourselves. We die to our old way of living. The old is gone, the new has come. There's no following Jesus without a death. We lose our life to find it. We die in order to live. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. So there's a sense of mourning. Does that make sense? There's a sense of mourning attached to following Jesus because we ought to mourn and grieve because we leave that old life behind and we come into new life in Him. But we also mourn, let's go one layer deeper still, because we recognize the reality of our sin and our fallenness. We mourn because we recognize not only that we are saved, we recognize what it cost God to save us. I really like the amplified translation of this verse because it says in verse 4, blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent, for they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. Isn't that beautiful? So we, we mourn because we recognize and we take responsibility for our sin and our choices, and we, take, we just take a moment to take stock of what it cost Jesus, who knew no sin, to pay the price for our sin. We keep a sober understanding, not only of our salvation, but of what it cost God to save us. Blessed, the Bible says, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The third blessing is in verse 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What an earth is meek. Anybody else struggle for a working definition of what it is to be meek? Blessed, Jesus said, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I like the, the message translation says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. <laughs> meek. Meek is not a word that people use much, is it? It's no wonder we struggle to work out what it means. What does it mean to be meek? As, actually, as I tried to think, what do I think of when I think of meek? I think of a rhyming word. I think of weak. When I think of meekness, I think of weakness. I imagine someone soft and defenseless. That's what I imagine. So I, I went, to, went to Google and I went to online dictionaries to get a sense of the definition of meekness. And the first one that popped up was a secular dictionary, the Merriam-Webster. No wonder we don't feel like this sounds like a blessing because this is how the world understands what it is to be meek. It says to be meek is, number one, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Number two, deficient in spirit and courage. And number three, not violent or strong. So no wonder when Jesus says you're blessed when you're meek, if we have a definition that includes being deficient in spirit and courage, no wonder none of us would think it sounds like much of a blessing. You know what's ironic about this? I actually think the world couldn't be more wrong about what meekness actually is. That meekness actually requires incredible courage and incredible strength. It's just the opposite of a deficiency. So when you look at Bible dictionaries, here's one definition we can put up. You know, one Bible commentary says meekness, according to the Bible, is being humble and gentle towards others and being willingly submissive and obedient to the Lord. That's good, isn't it? It's not being selfish and arrogant, loud, or obnoxious. Rather, it's having a quiet but confident trust in the Lord and being willing and able to do whatever He commands. Now, think about that again. 
Does that sound like you're deficient in spirit or courage or strength to do that? No. No, this is like, this is like strength under restraint. I think about Jesus going to the cross. I think about Christ, who we know now with the benefit of hindsight, had all the legions of heaven's angels at his disposal, and yet allows himself to be spat upon and ridiculed, mocking signs painted and put above him. He's beaten a crown of thorns. He's whipped and given a, a farce of a trial. He's nailed to a cross, and he dies this you know, death that represented in their day, not only death, but shame. And he does all of that willingly for our sake with heaven's angels at his disposal. Does that sound like deficient <laughs> in spirit or courage or strength? Not at all. It's the opposite. He was willingly submissive to the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done, he said. He puts his trust in the Father. That's what it is for you and I to be meek. You know, centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus' death, had, had, had prophesied how, how he would die like a lamb to the slaughter without lifting his voice, without protest. So it's not weakness, it's submission to self-control. It's power under self-control. In fact, if there was a Paul Andrew dictionary, this would be my definition of meekness. Are you ready for it? Because I didn't like anybody else's. This is my definition of meekness that I submit to you humbly this morning. I think meekness is strength restrained for the sake of a higher purpose. I think that's the essence of what it is to be meek. It is strength restrained for the sake of a higher purpose. To be meek is to walk in humility. It's the opposite of pride. And I'm almost sure that's why the enemy didn't even realize what Jesus was doing, because he mistook his meekness for weakness as he went to the cross. It was power, strength, restrained for the sake of a higher purpose. Blessed, Jesus said, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let me give you one more. This final one we'll share today is that Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed, he said, are those who hunger and thirst for the right things. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I wonder what you and I really hunger for. Like, really? What do we really desire? I mean, I know what we say. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you think, I know what I should want. <laughs> Or I know what I want to want, but what I actually want might be a different story. What do I really hunger for? What do I really thirst for? The Bible says, when I hunger and when I thirst for righteousness. You know, when I, when I, when I, I think of righteousness as two things. It's, it's right standing before God and it's right living because of that right standing. Righteousness. Right standing is what Jesus paid for. He, he paid for that on the cross. I, I can only receive that by faith and grace. But because of that right standing that he gives me and the transformation that happens on the inside, I can live rightly, transform from the inside out. Blessed, the Bible says, am I. Blessed are you when you hunger and you thirst to have a vibrant, living revelation of your right standing before God. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst to live rightly before God. He says you'll be filled, not just given a little morsel, not just a little taste. We sometimes get this idea 
that God is trying to be elusive, and it's like some unattainable dream to know Him and to walk in relationship with God. That's not the case at all. He says, when you hunger and you thirst for this, you're going to be filled. I get the picture of us at the buffet, like, oh, you know, when you're like, you're, you're like, I need to pace myself walking home after that meal, you know? This isn't just like, I've eaten a little. This is not a snack. He says, my desire is that you would be filled with this revelation, filled with this righteousness of Christ. You would be filled with this sense of walking before Him rightly. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, take delight in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. So I want my desires to align with His desires because He's a good Father. In fact, Jesus said, He's a good Father and if you ask Him for bread, He won't give you a stone. He knows what you need. Ask. He says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. In the book of James, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask. And he'll give liberally. He's a good, good father. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The Amplified says, blessed are those who actively seek right standing with God. I just have a sense, as I bring this message to a close, I have a sense there are some of you here today, and I don't know what words you would put around this, but we could describe it as Jesus did, as a hunger in your heart. I believe there are people here today, and you have a hunger, you have a thirst, you have a yearning, you have, maybe you could call it a dissatisfaction, or you have this sense that there's something more to life, something more for you. You know, you have a sense that, that you could really not only know about God, but to know God. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. And when you hunger and when you thirst after Him, His desire is that you would be filled. I believe He's placed in us a hunger to experience forgiveness, to know peace, real joy. He places a hunger in you and I for a whole new way of living. And you know what's beautiful? Is He put that hunger there. He put that hunger there in order that He might satisfy it in you. Friend, there's more. There really is. Psalm 42, I'll finish with this, says... As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. That's the way I want to live, amen? Hungering, thirsting after Him, blessed in my seeking of Him. There's more, there's more, there's more. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.